Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody got it? We're going to start reading at the 22nd verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father God, we... Thank you for the truth of your word and everything we've been able to learn over the past several Sundays on the topic of marriage. Pray that your Holy Spirit will help us yet again to grow, to learn, to transform, to change, to repent, to be encouraged and edified by the Holy Scriptures. Help us to be conformed to the image of your son, even in this. And help me to preach and teach your word accurately and boldly. And we ask it all in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in part one of our series, we dealt primarily with the origins of man and how God created Adam to be the spiritual priest in God's sacred space, making him the spiritual leader of his wife, who was then created second to be his helper. In part two, we walk through Proverbs chapter 31 and explain that our idea of what it means to be a helper is often watered down and we take it to be a, um, a thing of inferiority. But when we read Proverbs chapter 31, we see it's not that it's more empowerment, if anything else. And today we're going to bring all those principles together in the New Testament. And we're going to see what it is that Paul wants us to know about this marital union. The first thing I want to say is that. Uh, One of the biggest misconceptions about marriage in the Christian church today, or really marriage in general, is that it's only about the two people who are married. Got a husband, you have a wife, and we think that at the end of the day, marriage is all about them. (laughs) What I want to contend today is that the marriages that exist in the church are bigger than just the two people who are married but it has implications for the whole Christian community. Say that again. Marital unions that exist between one man and one woman 
have implications for the whole local church, the whole community, either negative implications or positive implications. But it does matter. How do I arrive at this conclusion? Well, if you read Ephesians chapter five and you don't do what we just did when I just began at verse 22. But if you start at verse one, here's what you, you find out. Paul is creating a context in which he is bringing up different moral issues in the Ephesian church, which is the church that he's writing to. And he's trying to teach them how to live in healthy community amongst each other. So he gives them certain commands, such as around verse three, he tells them, let no obscenities or foolish talk proceed out of your mouth. So contrary to popular belief, what you're hearing from podcasters and fake pastors saying that what you say don't matter and you can cuss and it don't matter. And that's not a sin. It's totally nonsense because Paul makes it clear in the first three chapters, I'm sorry, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter five, that our speech matters. Even Jesus says that we will give an account for every careless word spoken. The book of James says you cannot bless men with the same tongue that you curse them with. So we know irrefutably that God cares about our speech. He continues on. He says, let there be no fornication or sexual immorality or adultery amongst you. Then you go further and further down the list. And when you get around verse 18, he has the popular verse that many of us are familiar with, where he says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, making a melody to the Lord with your heart, singing to one another in spiritual songs, psalms, and hymns. Then he says, have a heart filled with thanksgiving. Then the last part he says, right before our current part, he says, make sure you live in submission to each other in reverence to Christ. So he says that there is this mutual submission that believers are supposed to have amongst other believers. And he says, make sure you do it in reverence to who? Christ. So that means that in this whole context of chapter five, before he even talks about marriage, what is he talking about? Healthy Christian community, right? By time he gets to verse 22, he's not changing the context. He's still talking about healthy Christian community. In other words, his point is one of the ways you have healthy Christian community is to have healthy marriages. So we cannot look at our marriage issues, whether we have a good marriage or a bad marriage or a mediocre marriage, as something that only impacts us. No, it affects everybody. It's bigger than us. So we should approach it with a greater level of weightiness. Let's look at what Paul says in verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord. Notice he says, to your own husbands. He, do, he doesn't say, wives submit to whatever husband is in the room. He's not trying to create a hierarchy between men and women as if men are intrinsically or ontologically greater than women in general or anything like that. He's saying, wives, submit to your own husbands. In other words, to put it in, in, in more plain terms, no other husbands have any other authority than the one that you married to. 
And we're going to talk about this later in the series. We're going to piggyback on this again when we start talking about pastoral authority. Because one of the biggest misconceptions in the church is that the pastor or the elders of the church can implant themselves into the home of another person and exercise authority over the man of that house. That's not a biblical idea, and it's usually a sign of cults that typically do that. So he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, Paul is writing to a church that is located in the city of Ephesus, which is why this book is called the book of Ephesians. This means that Paul is writing in what we call uh, the, the historical backdrop of the Greco-Roman world. Greco-Roman means Greek and Roman influenced. So these men and women who are in this congregation are living under the Greco-Roman culture, just like we're living under American culture, and we take on certain tendencies based on the culture we're living in, right? Well, in the Greco-Roman culture, they had their own distinctives, and one of those distinctives had to do with marriage. Now, hear me on this. Wives in the Greco-Roman culture, who Paul is writing to, It was already an understanding that they must submit themselves to their husbands. However, the type of submission that they were accustomed to is not what Paul is talking about. For example, if you look at ancient marriage contracts from the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, some of them have clauses that say that the wife must give absolute total obedience to the husband, no questions asked. That was the culture and the expectation. There, There was this abusive, dominant nature of submission amongst the women. Now, one of the reasons for this is that the, the Romans were older men and they often married teenagers. So since they married younger women, they did not view them as equals, but treated them like kids. One scholar wrote that it would be inconceivable for an ancient Greek or Roman person to view a woman as an equal with a man. I can just feel the anger rising up. (laughs) I didn't say it. This is the culture that Paul is writing to. So these women are hearing him talk about submission. And guess what? Their mind probably automatically goes to this fool trying to get us to do what these abusive husbands already making us do. But here's what we need to understand. Paul is not being informed by Greco-Roman culture. He's trying to be countercultural. When he introduces this concept of submission. He's not talking about what they've already experienced. If that was the case, then why is he writing to them about it? When Paul wrote letters or any of the apostles, they're writing to address issues that were in the church. So Paul must be saying to himself, the wives and the husbands do not understand headship and submission So I need to write to them under a bibliocentric perspective so that they understand what the will of the Lord is. So what does it mean for Paul? When Paul says wives submit, he's not informed by Greco-Roman culture. He's informed by the Old Testament and he's informed by the gospel. Paul is looking back to what we discussed in part one. In Genesis chapter 2, where God made Adam first, right? And where did he put him after he made him? 
in the garden. Was Eve created yet? No. So he gives Adam the word of God. He, he calls him to, to manage sacred space. Then afterwards, he brings Eve. What is God doing? He's establishing spiritual authority in the house. The husband is created first. The wife is created second, therefore making her the helper and submissive to her husband. This is what is informing Paul's thought. Moses is calling it being a helper. Paul is thinking the exact same thing. He just gives it a new name. He calls it submission. But he's trying to explain to them it's a lot different than what they've been subjecting themselves to. Earlier, I said how the Romans did not view men and women as equals. In fact, they couldn't even conceive of that, right? Well, if Paul agreed with that, why would he say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, nor male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. This shows us that Paul's view of submission cannot be Roman because they would never view a man and a woman as being equal. So here's what Paul means when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He's simply saying humbly and lovingly and trustingly, I'm going to make that word up, follow the leadership of your husband. It's really not as deep as we make it. He's saying, follow the leadership of your husband. If that's not clear enough, look at what he says in verse 23. He says, just as the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church. Don't forget verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their husbands in everything. He says, just as the church follows the leadership of Christ, because we trust him and because we love him, even if we get a little rattled up, if we don't understand the direction that he's leading us in, we have a responsibility to yield to his authority. Paul clearly says the wife should do the same thing for her husband. Now, how does this look practically? We're going to use uh, two fake names, <laughs> Jack and Jill. We got any Jacks or Jills in the room? Because I don't want nobody saying I'm talking about you. All right, no, we, we got one. Jill, your name is Jill for, for short. You just shorten your name. That's not your full name. So that don't count. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill just left the church for whatever reason, and Jack and Jill are looking for a new church. Jill wants to go to First Missionary Baptist down the street. Jack says they shout too much at Missionary Baptist, so he wants to go to the conservative evangelical church in Pepper Pike, where it's quiet. They come to the table and they both give pros and cons on what they feel is the best decision. And they pray together about this. And they pray individually about this. And they still can't see eye to eye. At this point, a decision needs to be made. 
It can't be a stalemate, and it just don't go nowhere. It can't be a we gonna, you gonna go your way, I'm gonna go my way, and we gonna live divorced. Somebody gotta make a decision. At that point, Paul is saying, I expect the wife to say, I don't get it, Jack. I like to shout and don't understand why you don't. But I'm going to trust that you are looking out for the best interests of our family and that you have sought the Lord on this. And I'm going to lovingly yield to your leadership. Jack don't want no new car. Jill wants a car note. Jack says, have you seen the light bill lately? Jill says, the Lord will work it out. (laughs) Somebody got to make a decision. Therefore, Paul is expecting this willful yielding to the leadership of her husband. Now, Here's what I know you're thinking. (laughs) I would say, and this is my opinion, I'm going off the record for a minute, so this is not thus saith the Lord. I'm coming out of this text, and I'm about to give you my personal opinion. My opinion is that there are three major reasons wives have a hard time receiving everything I just said. I'm going to save the most probable reason for last. So I'm going to start with the minority and I'm going to work my way up to the majority. All right. Some women, or I should say wives are spiritually immature and the spiritual immaturity not only makes it hard for them to receive doctrines like submission, it makes it hard for them to receive many biblical doctrines that are hard to swallow. Because they have not grown in their sanctification as a believer and it's now being fleshed out even in how they do marriage. That's true for some. I think that's the minority reason, but I think it's out there. The second reason I believe is more common is that many wives have never had submission modeled for them. They've never had it taught which is why I'm up here doing it now. (laughs) They may have grown up and never seen their mother or their grandmother live in submission to their parents or to their father. They've never seen any examples. They've never heard a sermon. They've never taken a workshop. They've never heard it taught. Since they've never heard it taught, when they hear submission, all they hear is I don't have a voice. My opinions don't matter. I can never be right in this situation. I just got to give this man his way no matter what. Because they've never had it taught. Now, I'm about to put a lot of pressure on the older ladies in the room. Either older married women by age, or if you've been married in the past, or Uh, older married women who are more mature spiritually. I'm about to put a lot of weight on you. Because can you get me Titus, the second chapter? (laughs) Oh, we getting there. It's a build up. 
Hold on, man. Just enjoy it, man, because it's about to go down in about 10 minutes. So just hang in there. <laughs> Y'all got to let me get through the message, man. Y'all, it's cracking me up. Contrary to popular belief, it is not primarily the responsibility of the pastors and elders of the local church to teach women how to be wives and mothers. I'm going to say more about that, but let's look at Paul's writing here. He says, older women. Does that say older men or women? Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. That means don't be gossiping, lying on folk. Or slaves to much wine. Don't be an alcoholic. They are to teach what is good. Oh, I thought women couldn't teach. Okay. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Next verse. Verse 6, it says, uh, likewise, I'm sorry, it says, uh, in verse 5, and to be self-controlled. Pure working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Watch this. That the word of God may not be reviled. Man. Paul writing to Titus, who's a man, elder authority. And he says, make sure the older women know it ain't your job to disciple the women into being wives. Because Paul understands that as much as y'all love the pastor and the elders, there are limitations based on gender. God created me to be a man, so I live, think, and act like a man. So he says they need somebody who sees the world the way they do, who feels things the way they do, to pull them up under their wing and train them on how to do this. This shows us that being a Christian does not automatically make you a good wife and mother. It must be taught. When I look at my own life, much of what I do with my children and how I raise my boys and the principles that I give them is based on how my daddy taught me. Based on this book. Things don't happen overnight. We need to be trained. So the women have a responsibility to disciple the women how to do this submission thing because it's hard. Or I should say it can be hard. So the first reason wives can have a problem with this is spiritual maturity. Second reason is they've never had it taught more specifically by older women who, who are godly and understand the scriptures. And here's the third reason. <laughs> Where my man at? <laughs> I think the third and most primary reason that women have a hard time submitting to their husbands is because they view their husbands as bad leaders. 
who do not love them the way they're supposed to be loved and who do not lead them the way they're supposed to be led, who do not treat them the way they're supposed to be treated. Therefore, the woman goes on strike. In 2006, I worked a job in Solon called Porter Engineered Systems. Me and my best friend, Calvin, a lot of y'all know him. We worked there together. We got this job because our pastor at the time, Pastor Benjamin Isabel, who was my first, uh, the, the first uh, pastor who, who got me into, the pu- into public ministry. His brother was the supervisor at this job. So he got us this job at this factory. We were machine operators. Now, this place was not a pleasant place to work. It was hot. There was no air conditioning. You on your feet all day. But there's one thing that made it very easy. We had a good manager. I mean, this dude is the best supervisor anybody could ask for. He wasn't a bother book type of person. He was like, just get the work done. His only thing mattered to him was the bottom line. Get your quota. Y'all could pull music out. You could blast it as loud as you want. Y'all can laugh. Y'all can joke. Y'all can dance. Just make sure when 4 p.m. come, (laughs) that quota has been hit. It was so easy to work for this man. And the culture was so light. And everybody got along. There was no bickering because the leader, the manager, the supervisor set the tone for the whole environment. So we all easily yielded to his authority with no pushback. Then we got a new manager. Listen, man. (laughs) It's been almost 20 years and I still remember his name. I could just see his face right now as I just look at this ceiling. This brother was like a tyrant in his leadership. No more music, (laughs) no more dancing. He even said we could not chew gum on the assembly line. People start quitting. We had fights nearly break out. Everything got ugly and a lot of us left. We all checked out, why? Because his authority, his leadership was so harsh. And he used to always have this quote, if you come to him with an issue, like something's bothering you or you got to go home early or, or you got something happened that was inconvenient in your life, if you would try to go to him and it was work-related, he would always have this quote. He would say, well, sometimes in life we all got to make sacrifices. <laughs> I remember the quote, y'all. <laughs> he was just a mean guy. And it impacted how the work went. Nobody was hitting the quotas. Everybody mad. And guess what what happened in about a year? The whole company shut down. This is a lesson on what bad leadership will do to a house. When husbands do not love their wives the way God desired them to love their wives, it will impact how they act. 
oftentimes it's not that a woman does not want to submit to her husband. She just want to feel loved. She want to be called beautiful. She wants a compliment. She want to be able to trust that you're faithful. She want to be able to have a conversation of communication where she's not belittled or talked down upon like a child. She wants help with the laundry, with the kids. She just wants to have her voice heard. She's not trying to be rebellious. It's just that poor leadership has made it hard for her. Now, what should the wife's response be? Because Paul says, submit to your husbands in everything. But I just kept it real and say one of the reasons that don't happen (laughs) is because of bad leadership. Does the wife now say, well, when you become a good leader, we'll revisit this submission thing. Let me get first Peter chapter three. Likewise, husbands, um, no, no, no. Let me get a uh, first Peter chapter three, verse one. Should have had that one on there. There we go. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Peter agree with Paul so far, right? So that even if. Some do not obey the word. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Wow. Peter doesn't say wives be subject to your husbands, but if they're disobedient to the word, ignore them. He says, Continue to be submissive with the purpose of winning them over by your respectful and meek demeanor. He doesn't say be nasty back. He didn't say I'm going to give you the same energy you've given me. <laughs> Y'all know how we can be sometime when that petty, that petty bone come out, that petty gene. We all got a little petty in us. I'm going to give you exactly what you just gave me. Peter says, don't do that. Continue to obey me. Give you another illustration. I asked my mother, I've shared this with many of you before. I asked my mother permission to share. She let me share it. My parents was married almost 30 years before my father's death. And they had ups, they had downs, but man, they loved each other so much. And when I was a kid, uh, maybe around six years old, or a little younger, my father developed a gambling problem where he was betting on the horses and playing spades with his family and playing pool. My dad was a pool shark. They used to call him nine ball shorty because he was about five, six, (laughs) but he was cold on that table. He's the one who taught me how to shoot pool. I mean, he would just run people off this table and he would come home with a stash (laughs) or he would come home without a stash. Because when you gamble, it's a gamble. It's a risk. So there were times where lights got cut off because the money was lost in gambling. 
and my mother was so angry. And we live in the, in the east side at this time. We we in the hood, and 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 Seneca, my cousin back there, he lived right down the street from her. We from me, we all in the same neighborhood. Families knew each other, grew up together. And and, and my mother was so angry about this. And she told me a funny story. She told me this after he died. We were just looking for something to laugh at because we were so sad. So she was like, I remember when your father was gambling, and he had come home, and he'd be sleep on the couch, and I just come next to the couch and just bang it real hard with my hip and startle him out of his sleep and just make him scared like I'm about to cut him or something. I'm like, mind you, wild for that. But she was like, I was doing stuff like that because I was angry. And she said, in the midst of me doing this, God spoke this verse to me that says, even when they're being disobedient to the word, have a respectful and reverent demeanor towards them. So she switched it up. She had everything clean when they come home. Food cooked. Can I help you with anything? Here's your plate. Can, can I do something for you? How was your day? Even though he's being a knucklehead. She's doing what the scripture said. And over a period of time, she says, one day my father came into the house and he broke down in tears. And he repented of his addiction. And God set him free from it that day. And he apologized to his wife and restored our family. Not because moms was being petty. That didn't work. (laughs) But when she says, I'm going to obey God, God says, will you obey me? Watch what I'm going to do for you. I know it's hard, ladies, but we have a responsibility to obey Christ. Because your submission to your husband is not because your husband's a good leader. It's because Jesus is a good leader. And his leadership will never change. So in trust and reverence to him, submit to your husbands. Now, this does not mean get beat up and stay there and get beat up. Don't mean that. It don't mean, you know, if things like that are happening, especially if your husband is a member of this church, we do have something called church discipline. We do have something called excommunication. Which means that if you have a believer who's living in unrepentant sin over a period of time and we continue to reward, to warn them and they refuse to repent, that the Bible says remove them out of the congregation and pray that they'll repent and come back. So we're not saying subject yourselves to that. You're getting beat up and slapped up. Number one, call the police before you call me. <laughs> you got these churches trying to deal with everything in-house. That is a crime. Somebody needs to be locked up. Okay, call the police first, then call me. Just want to make that clear. I know the Browns play today, but this is important, y'all. They're going to lose anyway, so I ain't. Just saying. I'm just saying. Y'all do this every year. Y'all get hyped up. Then y'all get let down. Now y'all got to go counsel y'all. Y'all going to watch the game? Go ahead and throw it. Because y'all going to watch it, then y'all going to be calling me for a counseling session because you depressed. <laughs> it ain't a prophecy because they might win. <laughs> Man, people going to think we crazy when they hear this recording. Y'all got to act right today. We putting these sermons online. (laughs) Verse 25, Paul anticipates all the issues that the women are going to have that I just presented to you. So he loves the women in Ephesus so much, he don't stop at verse 24. He gives them a verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Greco-Roman culture, right? In the Greco-Roman world, 
there was absolutely no obligation for a man to ever love his wife. All the written code says, wife, obey husbands, husbands, do as you please. So when Paul says, husbands, you are required by God to love your wife. He's sending shockwaves through the entire congregation. They like, what? We supposed to actually love them? We thought this was one-sided. I thought we weren't equals. Paul says, no, we're not informed by Greco-Roman culture. We're informed by the gospel. So he says, husbands, love your wives. So throughout scripture, women are compared to copy other women. They're expected to copy the older women in the book of Titus. They're expected to copy Sarah in 1 Peter chapter 3. They're expected to copy the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. But the husband's model is not a human being. He didn't say love your wife like Moses or like some other prophet. He goes straight to Christ and he says Christ is the perfect example for how a man should love his wife. Any man who loves his wife the way Paul is about to command us to will have less issues with submission 99.9% of the time. Not 100% of the time because of the mother two reasons I gave. Immaturity and it being modeled. But for most of you, if you love your wife the way Christ has called you to love her, it's going to minimize issues. So let's talk about that real quick and we out. He says, number one, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says the first way Christ loved this church is by dying for them. This represents self-giving, sacrifice, That's what Paul is saying. He's saying the way Jesus gave up his life voluntarily for the benefit of you, husbands, give up all that you are for the benefit of your wife. Voluntarily, lovingly do it. Make sacrifices. This means that if neither one of us ain't been out in a while because we can't find babysitting, How come it always got to be the mother that got to stay home? Sacrificial love. How come it always has to be that the wife has to do the cooking all the time? Why is it it that the man can never help pick up the slack in that area? Why Why is it that we make it seem like certain attributes are inherently feminine, like cooking? I didn't have time to get them all on the screen for you, but there are several verses in the Old Testament where you have men preparing feasts for their house. Abraham did it. Isaac did it. Solomon did it. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the Bible says that in the coming in the coming kingdom that Jesus is going to have all his people sitting at the table and he's going to prepare a feast for them. So this is not an inherently feminine quality. Sacrifices. So he says, Husbands need to make sacrifices for their wife. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What did you just catch there? It says that everything that Jesus did for the church was for the benefit of the church. It doesn't say he did this for himself. It says he did this for others. So that's the sacrifice and the self-giving. Verse 28, 
in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. What is Paul saying there? He says, no human is just going to neglect himself, not give himself basic needs for survival, not clean himself, uh, speak down upon himself. Nobody would do that to himself. So he says, why would you do this to your wife? She came from your body. So he says, nourish her. Verse 29, cherish her. The word cherish means to keep warm. The word nourish there means to provide, to take care of. What Paul is likely doing here is he's saying, make sure you make provision for your wife. Don't mean you got to make all the, the most money in the house. <laughs> That's not what he's getting at here. He's saying, but there does need to be some type of contribution monetarily that the husband provides for his wife. And when it says she must be cherished, kept warm, that most likely speaks of an intimacy in a relationship. So he says, cherish her, love her, sacrifice for her. Now, we're going to take a quick step out of Ephesians because there's other ways that we want to walk through that Paul expects from the husband and how he relates to his wife. Let me get Colossians. I believe that's chapter three. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. And ASB says, do not become embittered against them. That means don't be mean. He says, there's a way to say something. There's a way to talk to a woman. She not one of your homies in the street. He says, make sure you never treat her harshly. Men, ask yourselves, how are you treating your wife? If I was to just kick all the husbands out right now and say, wives, talk to me. Would you have a stomach ache and heart palpitations and, and tension headache from stress and anxiety of what's about to be said? Or will you kick your feet up and say, oh, I know I've been holding it down. I ain't perfect, but I know I treat her like a queen. If you can't say the latter, then Paul is talking to you. He doesn't say, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly unless they're not being submissive. He doesn't say that. He just says as an absolute, do not treat them harshly. Let me get first Peter. Chapter three, that other one that I had you skip over earlier, I think is verse seven. Yeah. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Wow. I got that escape song in my head now, that understanding song when I read this. Stop it, cat. <laughs> Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Men, we know what that means. There's a way to be understanding and there's a way to be not understanding. One of the reasons that husbands are not good at understanding because they're often not good at listening. I know when I've learned the hard way to stop always trying to fix problems. I've realized that sometimes my wife just want me to listen to what she's saying. To hear her voice and her heart, not immediately go into fix it mode. So he says, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, not lesser vessel. Most theologians believe that's talking about something physical right there. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's what's interesting. He says, show the woman honor 
Now, earlier he says that the wife must respect the husband. (laughs) But here he's saying the husband needs to respect his wife. That's what that word honor means. It means to revere. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, here's the big part. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Ooh. He says, you wonder why I'm not hearing your prayers and all type of hell breaking loose in your life and things are falling apart. Because you're not living with your wife in an understanding way. You're being harsh and cruel and mean and you're not loving her the way Christ loved the church. So until you do that, I'm going to be like this in heaven. Ears covered until you repent. That shows you how deeply God loves his daughters. That he says, I won't even hear the prayer requests of a husband who's mistreating you. Let's go back to Ephesians. Men, God called you to be the head of your wife, right? He's also called you to love your wife, right? Metaphorically speaking, there are two body parts a man needs to successfully and adequately keep Christ's command in the marriage. Two body parts he needs. I'm speaking metaphorically. He needs a heart and he needs a spine. He needs a heart and he needs a spine. If one of those is missing, it's going to fail at Christ's picture for the husband. He needs a heart because he needs to be able to love and not be harsh and to be understanding and to be self-giving and sacrificial and to be a good listener and to be tender and to be able to provide. He needs a heart to do those things. But he needs a spine in order to lead, to stand firm, to have strength, to walk in authority. He needs to have both. If he's all heart and no spine, He's going to be like this carpet I'm walking on. <laughs> he's going to get stumped on like a rag doll. If he's all heart, he's going to be all about the concerns of his wife, but will never be able to have a tough conversation. If he doesn't have a spine, he'll, he'll never be able to lead and make decisions for the family. Or if he does, he'll never be confident in those decisions. And the moment he hears that his wife has a problem with the decision, he changes it no matter what. If you have all heart and no spine, you become soft and weak. And God did not create men to be that way. But if you all spine and no heart, It's not even leadership no more. It's dominance. Any leader who has all spine and no heart is not a leader. He's a domineering. He's he's domineering people. He's dominating who's ever under his authority. If you're all spine and no heart, then it's always about getting your own way. Do what I say. Don't ask questions. You ain't got to hear. I know better than you. So why we even got to have a conversation about this? That's what happens when you're all spine. So Paul says you need to have spine and a heart in order to be a leader. And guess who did that perfectly? Christ. 
John chapter 8, he finds the woman caught in adultery. Everybody's standing around her to stone her, right? He let he who was out, who was without sin cast the first stone. Shut them all up. Then he, he gets down to her and he's writing in the ground and he's like, where are they? Where are they, Lord? Is, it, is anybody is anybody there? Jesus is like, they all gone because I'm protecting you. I'm, I'm guarding you. I'm nurturing you. I'm loving you. I'm giving you my heart. But nobody want to talk about the last verse of that passage. Oh, by the way, go and sin no more. That's the spine just came out. Gave her the heart. But authority's talking right now. You're putting yourself in danger. I'm warning you, this is not good. Matthew chapter 14, there's a storm and his disciples are on the boat and they see Jesus coming to them, walking on the water. He invites Peter out to walk on the water and Peter is walking and he's walking in faith. Then he takes his eyes off Christ. Then he begins to sink and it says that Jesus reached out his hand to save him and they were all in the boat. That's heart. Compassion, love. I don't want you to drown. But what did he say after that? Oh, ye of little faith. Why did you doubt spine? I got to be able to correct you when you're wrong because I got a spine. But I got to be able to do it in a way that's loving because I have a heart. What husbands tend to do is give way more criticisms than they do affirmations. We criticize everything the wife isn't doing without ever giving her credit for what she is doing. We always have a complaint, but we never have grace and we're failing and the marriages are suffering. And guess what else is suffering? Remember my intro? The community suffers because of it. Being a head of a household is not only about having authority. It's about having influence influence and using it in a godly way and being wise with it. And we as men, we got to do better. We got to stop making excuses on why we can't do what the scriptures say. At some point, and I'm not saying this to be harsh myself, but at some point, we got to wipe them tears and we got to be men. I give you a quick example and I got two more verses and we out. Remember back in 20, 2006, I got laid off from a job I was a temp at. I was working at Swage Lock. I was a temp there for like nine months and he sold me a dream that I would, I would get this job after nine months and then I went to go pick up my check and it's like, you, we don't need you back. And I was so upset. I was 21 years old. And I remember I walked into the house one summer and I'm just, my father's on the back porch barbecue and I just broke down crying like a baby. And I'll never forget my father. He came and ran to me and he got down on one knee. I'm a grown man at this time. He got down on one knee as I'm sitting on the table and he put his arm around, around me. You know what he did? He cried with me. He cried he, next to his son and he just began to build me up and encourage me and say, you're going to get through this and I got you. And he let me cry in his arms like a baby and he cried with me. But you know what he did after we cried together? His exact words, he says, now I need you to get up and be a man. Oh, I miss my father. And that's my message to our men here today. I'm going to cry with you. I'm going to put my arm around you. I'm going to empathize with you. I'm going to love you through it. I'm going to be patient. But at some point, get up and be a man. Verse 30. 
I'm sorry, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis, right? Ah, oh, Paul not being influenced by Rome. He's getting his theology from the Bible. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Look what he says in verse 32. He says this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he says I'm talking about marriage, husband and wife, but I'm also talking about Christ and the church. Wow. Understand, married folks and future married folks, that your marriage is actually a picture of the gospel. When people see our marriages, they're supposed to see the love of Christ and the submission of the church. So when we function out of order, we're messing up our witness. I'll leave you with this. When people see your marriage, your family members, your co-workers, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do they say, wow, what a beautiful reflection of the gospel? Or do they say, wow, this is the gospel? If it's, wow, this is the gospel, then we know we got some changes to make. But if they could say, wow, they're not perfect, they got issues, but look how they work through this stuff. Then we on the right track. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the word of God. It's powerful. It's convicting to me because I know I got so much work to do in my own life. And God, I pray that the words spoken, expounded upon from Ephesians and from Peter and from Colossians and everywhere else we went, we pray, Father God, that it'll transform your people from the inside out. Lord, you've showed us clearly what your heart is for the, for the marital union. Husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. Which means they cannot insist on always getting their own way. God, would you help us to receive that and to live it out and walk it out and flesh it out? God, I'm reminded of your word in Genesis 21 where Abraham and Sarah was in a situation and you told Abraham, whatever your wife tells you, do it. That lets me know that there are normal occurrences, not rare, normal occurrences where the man of God should listen to his wife and often take her advice. But we need your help. Things like submission are hard to talk about because what the culture has done to it and made it ugly when it's not. So, God, I pray that you would be with our women here who are married, who desire to be married. That you would help them to embrace the beautiful role. That they could subject themselves to their husband's leadership and trust them. Even when it's hard. And that you will bless their union as they seek to function the way you've called them to function in order, not out of order. And I thank you for what you're going to do for the marriages here at Living Stones on a local level. You're getting us right for the future. Because, you know, we need to be right in order to disciple the next generation, right? So we thank you for the chastising. 
and we glorify you for it. And we thank you that you took time to teach us. Help us to apply your word and to live it out. And we'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.